From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. This week, we're presenting the second part of a Citizen Scholar of the Cosmos featuring the work of Salte Shijieng, who is the second artist in our Three Tricksters series. Last week, we went with Salty to the Columbia River Correctional Facility near Portland, Oregon, where we learned a lot about prison fashion and art and comedy. This week takes us to Salty's home country, Singapore, where we hear about the lives of grandmas, the Bunyan to Bunyan project, and then back to the Columbia River Correctional Facility, where we encounter a native drum circle. I see myself as someone who is finding out things I'm curious about for myself through the projects I do. For example, in the project The Grandma Reporter, Mm -hmm. which is um, a publication I started on senior women's culture across the earth. I am clearly not an expert in that situation. I am a curious young woman asking questions to these older women and contributing my skills of facilitation, direction, curation, design, or photography, whatever it is, and helping them to answer those questions, to be expressed in a creative form for other people to learn about the questions that we are posing, whether it's what is your favorite outfit at the age of 74, or what does masturbation mean to you at 65? That was artist and self-described cosmic citizen Salty Shijiaing describing her work with senior women in Singapore and Portland, Oregon from our last episode. In that conversation, we talked about growing up in Singapore, grandmas and intimacy, who is an artist, the creative potency of questions, and a global newspaper called The Grandma Reporter. In this episode, we continue down the path of the provocative and unexpected with Salty. Along the way, we'll explore the secret lives of art gallery security staff, a cooking show called Microwave Magic, Bunyan fetishists, and a very funny group of incarcerated artists. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 4 of Bunyans and Art Galleries. So one of the things that that I was particularly taken by is you you address what I'm just going to describe as the human impulse to marginalize difference in one very intriguing way in your Bunyan to Bunyan project. And this is, I'm very objectively interested in this, but I'm also personally, because when I grew up and the first time I saw someone else's foot, I thought there was something the matter with their foot, (laughs) not mine because of my bunions. You created a project which basically said, hey, nobody has this conversation, right? (laughs) Yeah, I was, I I suppose you could say I was obsessed with bunions. I have bunions and I've had them pretty bad since I was a teenager and I did so many different things. I saw podiatrists, I got uh, custom-made insoles. I made homemade splints. I wore like toe separators, barefoot walking. I tried everything. So yeah, I, I decided to create this project that stemmed from the idea of Bunyan and then shot out in a million directions as I have come to realize that many of my projects take that form where it, it starts as this seed and then it kind of springs forth in in many like almost uncontrollable directions that inevitably end up overwhelming me 
but it's like I have to do it. And those are all very different entry points that uh, rest on a whole spectrum of emotions for people and ways to approach that, that original seed of a subject. So how does work like this that is so personal end up translating to broader issues or ideas? Or does it? So Bunyan to Bunyan, it's about so many things. It's about defects. It's about body image, inheritance, fetishes, care. And I see my Bunyans as a connection to my grandmothers, particularly my paternal grandmother because she had very bad Bunyans. And so in a way, I love them and I also would like them to disappear. So there was a part of the project where I made casts of my grandmother's feet and my grandfather's hand bunions, quote unquote, these knobby things on his hands. And that part looked at inheritance. There was also a publication where people contributed writing on inheritance and a bunion to bunion tote bag that had the bunions of me and my grand and people who contributed to the publication were invited to carrying that tote bag around in everyday life and just giving the publication out to people. There was a bunion archive that collected bunion stories and then I also invented a bunion measuring apparatus which is the poor person's method of getting a reading of your bunion angle without spending money seeing a podiatrist. Then there was also bunion massage workshop, a Guinness World Record attempt to take a group picture with the most number of bunions <laughs> in it, which Guinness World Records rejected. And there was the bunion fetish component as well. So many instances in your work where this hidden in plain sight nature of the world we live in people that are invisible, things that we don't see that, are, that, that matter a lot to people, things that we ignore, and you're basically pulling the curtain back and saying, oh, look what we have here. It's a whole treasure trove of stories and that break the spell of how people can be tyrannized by differences. And it seems to run throughout your work, your interaction at Dartmouth with the, the security folks there, and having worked at the Walker Arts Center myself, I know you have the curatorial artist world, and then you have this vast other population of support staff who are often completely anonymous and who spend their lives with artwork and have opinions about it. And you basically took down the wall between those two. Could you talk about that project a little? It, it was very inspiring to me. Yeah, thank you for framing it that way. So in one of my first few days of work as the artist in residence at University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, the College of Visual and Performing Arts, I was taken on an extensive tour of the Star Campus in downtown New Bedford. And it's a really historic building. And now they have it equipped with uh, amazing art-making equipment. There's anything you can think of. And at that time, there was an installation by an artist named Bill Seaman, who was doing a project on the overlooked objects in buildings like that, the electric box, the fire extinguisher, and things like that. So there were these kind of esoteric, poetic quotes on the walls uh, of the first floor. But then at the end of the whole tour, I realized that the most interesting thing that had happened to me that day was my conversation with Jim, the security guard. I asked him, hey, Jim, what do you think of the quotes on the wall? And then Jim was like, oh, salty, I, I don't really get it. I don't see why it's art. I don't know. 
and then in that moment like i had this flash of of excitement and insight and i was like oh wait a minute maybe jim's quotes should be on the walls this desk staring at the walls for hours and days and weeks and months what if his thoughts are on the walls instead i think it'd be equally uh if not more interesting no offense to bill to hear his thoughts and the thoughts of the other security officers and maintenance staff and so i got i went about seeking permission to do that and made friends with the rest of the security and maintenance staff and interviewed them on their thoughts on art and their work and everyday life and then eventually got their quotes on the walls in the same spots and new spots uh, in the same font design everything and hoping to confuse people who had been familiar with the previous uh, quotes, which had been up for some months, and also to challenge ideas of what gets to be called art and the insider-outsider roles that, that people play within the art ecosystem. And then we had an opening with a different activities, like Jim had a conversation booth, Wayne on the maintenance staff made guamkis, which are a traditional Polish dish, and then Peter, another security staff, did a runes writing workshop and it was like a really nice cozy evening for people to approach these men in a different way men who are often ignored or at least cast into a particular frame in a place that has well, at least some museums have pretty severe hierarchies in that way. It reminds me of when I ran the arts and corrections program in California we had an exhibition in the California state capitol and it was an exhibition of teaching artists and in incarcerated artists. And we very intentionally did not label the artists other than with their name and their medium. We didn't identify who was a free artist and who was not. And because it was in the state capitol and we had some Senate hearings, a whole host of critics came and they just howled. <laughs> they, they were so angry that we did not give them the easy out of identifying who was who. And, and it was just liberating, for, I think, for everybody except for the critics who felt you know, that they were having uh, a trick played on them. Mm -hmm. and it reminds me also that you spent some time working in, in the correctional facility. In, in Portland. It's called Columbia River Correctional Institution. And you did something that a lot of correctional facilities wouldn't have allowed you to do. But you created a show called, appropriately, The Inside Show, with inside artists and technicians doing all the production. I assume it was on a closed circuit? So it was like five episodes, of which only two have been released. Each ran about 45 minutes to an hour, and... It was shown in, within the prison TV system, mm -hmm. their in-house kind of content. And then we also showed it on public access TV through Open Signal, which is a media arts organization in Portland, and it's also on YouTube. And I, I know that there's at least some aspects of that were quite humorous. And could you talk about humor in uh, a correctional facility, which people do not normally characterize as humorous? Yeah, the the men who participated in the project brought so much humor and they use humor a lot to get by with their days and their time there. And underlying that humor can be a lot of criticism about the prison industrial complex. It can comment on personal pain, on difficult relationships, conflicts, prison experiences. Humor is a really powerful tool 
for all of those things. And I can say that was the most fun project I ever did in my life, mm. which it might be something unexpected to hear, but we laughed so much in that project. I remember the most fun moments for me were bringing the first cut of the cooking shows in and then we'll watch the edit together and everyone would be like doubling over with laughter. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and it was very wacky in a way, almost absurd and impossible to have that premise uh, of being allowed to do that in a correctional facility. Bringing in a microwave and ingredients and having this cooking show. So why don't we listen to a bit of that? Uh, It sounds like the men really got into it. So this is uh, not the cooking show. This is a segment of a game show called Twistery. Live from CRCI, it's everyone's favorite game show, Twistery, with your host, Dirk Dirk. Hey, 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 how's everybody doing today? Welcome to the show. We got a lot of freaking prizes spewing over here today. We got some noodles. We got a little bag of cookies. <laughs> Alex, tell them what else they're going to win. A brand new car. All right, Alex, hold on a minute. They're not going to win a new car. We stole the car, and that's why we're in CRCI. Tell them what they're really going to win. A brand new guitar. Alex, where did you get that guitar? I can't answer that. The co-host, all right, the co-host is going to pick the next question, and it's going to be for 30 points, okay? If you can figure this one out, you might just dig your way right out of here, okay? I'll talk to you. I'll talk to your counselor. We'll get your meds up. We might even get you an early parole. Well, Alex, I choose true or false teeth. True or false teeth? George Washington had wooden teeth. True or false? True. Wait. False. Okay, the guy in the middle here, he got it right, okay? George Washington did have wooden teeth. A little piece of history about our first president you didn't know. Where did all my cookies go? Where is your mother? Mom, this kid needs a spank over here. I'm coming. (laughs) That was great. Those are some real hams, inventive hams at that. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot that can happen within a small and sterile space if you let your imagination guide you. And in in the the edit room and on your computer after that as well. Yeah, and it was thanks to... Thanks to James Hanley, who is the Correctional Rehabilitations Manager in that facility, facility for pushing a lot of boundaries to make our project happen. And that was also after years of facilitating art programs there with some of my classmates from the Portland State University Art and Social Practice MFA program. So that relationship with the prison was built over years. Yeah, which is absolutely critical. And there's another place where... Yeah. Trust is the currency. And one of the things that brings up for me is that you brought something very important into the lives of those men. It was fulfilling for you, but I'm sure it was fulfilling for them. Part five, legacies. Given the fact that many projects, most projects in social practice have a beginning and an end, do you feel there's any obligation that artists doing this kind of work have to the people or the communities that are receiving the benefit in terms of building on the creative energy that has been developed so that there's a legacy or something left or to continue. This is a really important subject to 
tackle and for artists working in these ways to think about. And I think there are many different opinions, sometimes conflicting on this as well. I think it's while noting that people who collaborate in these projects receive particular benefits, it is also important to note that artists receive also a lot of benefits, social, cultural, capital, advancement of their careers and things like that. And yeah, so all parties have different experiences that can be pretty complex in terms of power, relationships, and continuing or not continuing relationships. In terms of continuing relationships with people, I, I often become friends with the people I collaborate with, and I try to keep in touch with those that I'm closer to on and off. And I think that in working with really vulnerable populations like the prison, it's important to think about the ethics of that relationship building even more. It's something that I'm still trying to figure out and how that the work can continue and, and what is the work, yeah, exactly. and especially when they've come out and their lives are completely different and they're dealing with a high potential of recidivism and the trauma and the shock of being out in a world that is so vastly different from the one on the inside and, and lack of support and often family issues, relationship issues and, and things like that. How does that then transit to the outside? I don't still don't have an answer because right after I finished that I that project, I went to Massachusetts to work and then COVID hit. And then it's also very hard to be in touch with many of them on the outside. Yeah, absolutely. It's immensely hard and... Yeah, sometimes you get very sad news about someone that you know and cared for, that they got into some kind of trouble, their lives changed. Yeah, it's complex. It is complex. On on the note of of working in the prison industrial complex, but I try to be a friend as much as I have the capacity for. And then in terms of continuing a project. I'm not sure what you meant by legacy. It's this. And actually, there's an analogy that I use to make sense of my own work in this area. This may seem strange, but in Greece, houses are taxed based on the number of stories that are built. And when young families, particularly in southern Greece, finding a piece of land and building a house is a big deal. It's a generational thing, but they often can't afford uh, to build a second story until they need it, okay? But they want to build the house. So when you go around the countryside, you see houses where the first floor is complete and on the top of the first floor, you see all of the rebar and all of the connections for the second floor, which will come later, maybe as many as 10 years later. And I think of my work in community as having two parts. Number one is delivering the value and the creativity and building those relationships. But the other one is always keeping an eye out for opportunities to plant rebar into the project so that if there is some opportunity for a a future iteration and next chapter, not necessarily involving me, that you've built it in a way that it has the greatest potential to transition. That makes the work much harder, but it has proved to be a a good strategy in a lot of circumstances. I like the analogy a lot and I would like to think more about that. Yeah, that's a difficult one because often we're coming up against a lack of resources, deadlines to even finish projects and then after that you're like consumed with other things. So this is why 
so much more spaciousness is needed around creating work. Yep. You reflect with yourself and, and with all the participants over time and check in again. And it's often not easy to achieve that. So you mentioned COVID, which has obviously disrupted much of the world. As an artist engaging in uh, a local global continuum of disruption, as, we, as hopefully we move back into that world, what have you learned and where do you see the role of artists who are working in, in the community sphere in terms of the future coming out of this? I think clearly artists are much needed in society now more than ever. And the the onset of COVID and the pandemic has gotten people thinking about essential versus Mm non-essential. And in Singapore, a survey published in June 2020 showed that artists were voted as the top most non-essential worker. (laughs) And this caused a huge uproar. But I think that the creative tools and skills that artists wield, which also encompass very logistical things like facilitation or very people-centered things for artists who work in the social sphere, are critical in helping to make the world a better place. It can go hand-in-hand with activism. Often, activism can be part of art as well, or art Mm -hmm. can be part of activism. The, The creative tools of art help to create more imaginative and malleable entry points mm-hmm. and more ways to imagine the future and remind us of our humanity. You know, in line with that, in one of our early episodes, uh, number four, I think, book artist Beth Thielen talked about how much the incarcerated artists she worked with have taught her about things like gaining perspective, finding meaning, and, and healing. In episode 34, another artist who is also a returned citizen who actually worked with Beth at San Quentin shared similar sentiments about how both his art making and his deep involvement with his Yurok tribal culture have contributed to his own healing, both in and out of prison. The reason I bring this up is, in addition to the fun and games of the Inside Show, there's a very poignant part of the show where a group of men from different tribes share some traditional songs. And if you don't mind, I'd like to listen to a bit of that before we end. Hello, welcome to CRCI. This is Music Culture, and I am your host, Joshua Tonkin, also known as Lone Wolf. Today I have some special guests with me. I have the Native Drum Circle. I was just wondering if each one of you could uh, tell me what tribe you're from. Uh, I'm from the Oglala Sioux tribe from Woodenee, South Dakota. Okay. I'm from Dakota Sioux, Poplar, Montana. Poplar, Montana. Uh, Cherokee. Cherokee. From Southern Oregon, uh, uh, the Modoc and Klamath Band. And uh, I'm from the Blackfeet Nation. We're about ready to do a song for everybody. This is called The Trail of Tears. This is in honor of uh, the Cherokee Nation when they... Uh, Taking off their homelands and march to the reservation. In honor of the, all the um, women and children, the elders that lost their lives during that march. Uh, and just for everyone else that's going through tough times in their life, we sing this song in honor of you. Sonny's going to lead us off with a prayer. And this is my uh, Dakota Sioux language. Wak Tinche Wakwa. 
Dedman Tupe, the charge Sani Tatka Witko. Wanka Tanka Ashimoni Wanik Shasha, Lashamone. What that says is uh, that I come from where the fish eaters live in Poplar, Montana. My name is Sonny Boyd, Crazy Bull. And asking the creator to come over here, help us out with this song and guide us. And now for the Trail of Tears. inspired you throughout your life? Like, what? how did you come to, to playing the drum, and how, do, how does it impact you? Me, personally, I didn't, you know, step onto the drum until I came in here, you know, kind of let my guards down and open myself up. Our old songs invites our old spirits to us to help cleanse us, and it helps get me in a good mood. How about you, Redcorn? Uh, it's, it's good medicine. I'm really um, honored to be a part of the circle and share the unity, you know, the, uh, the love that we have for this drum, the, the animal that uh, where this skin came from that helps make that heartbeat, you know, it's all connected. Takes me outside of these uh, these walls. Me myself, I have four children, and uh, I've taught them how to, you know, dance and sing songs and take them to ceremonies. keep my head lifted high. It's never let me, you know, let myself down. Let look, Keep looking down. I kept looking up, keep looking forward. There's always going to be a better road. It's very, you know, uplifting to see other bros want the help, but never ever given the chance to, you know, somebody to be there for them to kind of show them those ways, show them and let them know that there is a better path rather than coming back in here and keep walking that same path that got him in. Oh, I know that you've helped me a lot since, since I've been here, that, that, that's for sure. And Sonny, uh, I know within the circle you're, you're kind of looked at as an elder to all of us. Uh, how, how does that make you feel? I'm not that old, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy being here for the bros. I know a lot of songs. I like teaching and I learn from brothers that don't know much about this too. Some things that I might have missed in life. So. I learned it's a two-way street. The drum and our songs, they go back many years. And we've always had that connection. It's, when we sing, it's just, that's how we express our, ourself to our creator. That's how we, uh, a lot of our songs are prayer songs. I know all the bros have heard it said uh, that uh, a lot of us feel that we're, we walk a warrior path. 
being a warrior is being there for your people, being there for your elders, being there for your ones that can't dance, the, the ones that are in wheelchairs. You know, to have love for one another, having compassion for my brothers, it's a way of life. It's a, you know, it's a walk in beauty. That was something. Yeah. Yeah. Final question. Three creative works that have really made an impression upon you in, in recent times. One is forthcoming. It has not, it's not been published yet, but my dear friend Eli Nixon is putting forth a book called Blood Tide, which is about horseshoe crabs. And they are advocating for a holiday to celebrate horseshoe crabs, which is really a conduit for thinking about what it means to be human and what it means to be primordial and our responsibility towards the future and how we can create a really vibrant and imaginative future with the tools that they are proposing. It's like another kind of Bible mm. to have, mm. I think. Yeah. And then another book that I just started really getting into today is Organic Music Societies. It's by this organization in New York called Blank Forms, but it's about Don and Moki Cherry. Don Cherry, the jazz trumpeter, yeah. and Moki, his uh, Swedish wife. And the, the life that they created together in, in Sweden that was in this Tagarp schoolhouse, and they had a lot of community and experimental music, performance, children learning about art, and that feels like my vision for... Mm the world and my life. And then the third one is one that I have, I did not get the chance to see, but uh, I thought was an important thing that happened in the world. One of my artist friends in Singapore, Ila, did a project called Stimming Dreaming with her collaborator, Jana, who's an early intervention educator. And it's about stimming. Stimming is repetitive or unusual movement or noises. Seems to help some autistic children oh. and teenagers manage emotions and cope with overwhelming situations. It's about their own experiences with being primary caregivers for their family members. Yeah, I think it was a really important project that they put out and that tried to address misconceptions. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. A great list. Hopefully people will scurry about and try to find this has been a really enjoyable conversation. I appreciate you, once again, taking the time. Thank you so much you for are doing this. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to pause and talk about my work. Absolutely. Now, get back to it. Bye-bye. <laughs> Have a good evening. Bye. Bye-bye. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. As you can imagine, there are going to be a lot of really interesting links and references in this episode's show notes, so check them out. Also, please know you are listening is the lifeblood of this program, so click on the subscribe button on your podcast player and share us with your fellow travelers. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. We are forever thankful for the extraordinary soundscapes of Judy Munson and the fabulous sound effects that we get from freesound.org. So until next time, stay well and spread the good word. Music
hey, be sure to tune in next week for the third and final episode in our Three Trickster series featuring the big wow, a bridge builder, chef, culinary comedian, water opera empresario, Robert Farid Karimi. It's going to be wet, wild, and delicious. <laughs>